Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today I want to talk about the number one reason why I turn clients away. The number one reason why I decline a special education case. That's right, I don't take every case that walks in the door. I take a lot of them because I usually feel like I can make some kind of difference. And in this particular situation, I oftentimes am able to help parents work through their position, work through their interests that lie behind that position in a consultation. So I don't always say, oh no, this is, this is something that I won't do and walk away. And that's the stuff, the counseling, that I want to give you today. That's the information that I want to give you today so that you can avoid getting stuck, so that you can avoid having that conversation where you go to an attorney or an advocate and they say, this really isn't something that I can do. If you want that information, listen all the way through today, because not only am I going to give you the number one reason why I decline representation in a case, I'm gonna give you a couple of real life examples that have probably happened or have happened in similar ways in your particular case. And then I'm gonna give you some very practical things that you can do instead of staying in that stuck. So listen all the way through today. I'm excited to have you. Let's go ahead and get started. The number one way that I have declined representation in a special education case is when clients come to me with a principle-based argument. What's a principle-based argument? It is when the client wants for me to simply tell the school you were wrong. There's a right and there's a wrong and you were wrong. And the big kicker in these kind of arguments is because the client probably is right in these cases, but being right isn't gonna get them anywhere. It isn't gonna get them anything. No outcome is going to happen. No change is going to occur. They simply want for me Ashley Barlow, to send a letter or to make a phone call or to go to a meeting and say, you were wrong. As though I'm like, you know, the father confessor or something. You were wrong. But there's never anything in this kind of argument, there isn't something that we can say, and therefore we deserve this, or the child gets this. So here's how this kind of arises in real life. Maybe a teacher isn't keeping accurate data, or the teacher doesn't communicate progress monitoring or daily progress, or um, whether or not a child's going to the restroom, or you know any of those kind of daily things that we need to know. Or the teacher doesn't deliver the specially designed instruction the right number of minutes, or maybe accommodations aren't being given exactly to T, exactly the way that they should be. 
But in these cases, these cases when people come into my office, the reason why I can't do anything is because the child is still making progress. The child is still doing okay. The child in these cases is doing great. The school missed a technicality, sure, but the child is doing great. So when you look at the cost benefit, you look and the child's doing great. And so in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of a no harm, no foul situation. Water under the bridge. Parents though, oftentimes want the school to be wrong. And before you turn this off and say, oh no, that's absolutely wrong. I want you to know that there's a lot of value in having the conversation. There's a lot of value in you as a parent saying, you know, if I had known, if you had communicated, I could have done this. And yes, we're making progress, but maybe the progress would have been exponentially better. Or if I had known, if you had communicated about the, the toileting accidents, I could have suggested something that our outside behavior therapist does. So there's a lot of value in having the conversation yourself. And so I don't want for you to think that I'm saying this in today's podcast to say, well, these are things that we don't talk about. I'm saying these are reasons why you probably want to have the conversation yourself as opposed to bringing in an attorney or an advocate or some kind of authority that you see as a higher authority to tell the school you're wrong. Okay, so these are the reasons why I turn away cases as a special education attorney. So why is it a bad strategy for you to hire an attorney to go in and tell the school you were wrong? The answer is because there's no solution to these kinds of cases besides an apology. Usually when parents come in, they want school to say, oh my gosh, I completely understand, I agree, and I am so sorry that that happened. But that outcome is so unlikely to occur. And it's unlikely to occur for a lot of reasons, probably mostly ego, right? The school is never going to say, I'm sorry and I was wrong. But there's also this really difficult bureaucratic hierarchy of egos and authority in a school district. And the people with whom you probably interact most, the teachers, are at the bottom rung of that. And then you've got the, the building personnel. So that might be your principal or your case coordinator or you know whoever runs your, your IEP meetings. Um, that person is like the definition of middle management because they have to do what the people at central office or the board of education tell them to do. And so they're kind of the boots on the ground and they're the leadership in their, in their building. But for them to go up against the higher authority at central office or the board of education or you know your big leadership is highly, highly unlikely. And still, even in the board of education, there's another hierarchy because at the very least, you probably have directors of special education and at least one assistant superintendent before you get to the main superintendent who also answers to the Board of Education. And so there's this really weird hierarchy. And unless you have people that are really w willing to 
quote unquote, buck the system to go against the next level of authority, you're not likely to get that apology that you think you deserve. And by the way, what's the apology do for the child? The apology doesn't yield effective change. You've probably heard me say before, conflict yields effective change. So if you don't like something, if something has happened and you don't like it, then I say, talk about it. Because if we talk about it and we meet that conflict, then we're going to probably get some kind of outcome. But the underlying concept underneath that theory, underneath that um, recommendation that I have, is that there has to be a solution. There has to be change to effect. And if the change is just an apology, you may as well forget it because you probably aren't going to get an apology. The other problem with this kind of argument, this principle-based argument, is that there aren't any teeth to your argument. There isn't any oomph behind it. There's nothing in which to ground your argument. So if a child is making progress and doing great, then we can't go in under the law, the way that the laws are, are written, the federal law is written, and most likely your state law, we can't go in and say, well, we deserve compensatory education because the minutes weren't reported or because we missed 20 minutes this year or because, 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 because. We can't do it because that's not the way that the law is written. And so if we go in and we try to make these arguments that aren't founded in the law, we just sound like talking heads because the school knows, well, we don't have to do anything. The child still made progress. Yes, maybe we were wrong, but it's a no harm, no foul situation. And when there's no teeth to your argument, there's no negotiation that can happen. I can't say, well, you have to do this. You have to apologize. There's nothing in the law that says you have to apologize. So let me give you a couple of examples of how these principle-based arguments occur. One that happens time and time and time again in my office, I probably get 10 of these per year, is that a child is enrolled in a private school and the private school does not take federal funding. So if the school does not take federal funding, the school does not have to follow IDEA. They are private institutions and for all intensive purposes, they don't have to follow IDEA. Um, now there's lots of exceptions to that. So let's just say, let's just assume that I know that the school doesn't have to follow IDEA. And so the parents come to me and they're asking for um, something under IDEA that the school doesn't have to provide. So it might be accommodations and modifications to general education. It might be um, education in a lesser restrictive environment. It might just be entry into the school. But parents oftentimes come to me and they say, well, my Catholic school won't admit my child. You know, they've got 17 older siblings that go to this school, but they're saying that my child with CP cannot be admitted. Or they're saying it happens in the Down syndrome community very, very often. They're saying that my child with Down syndrome can't be admitted. Or they're saying that they can't buy the um, 
the tools that my child needs at school. They can't buy the curriculae, they can't buy the um, adaptive seating, they can't buy stuff to, to outfit a sensory room. And so the parents say, this is wrong. I know that they don't have to, but it's wrong. And Ashley, I need you to go in and tell them that they're wrong. And the problem with that is the school doesn't have to do the thing that the parents want. The school isn't required to admit the child with CP or Down syndrome. The school isn't required to have a sensory room. The school isn't required to have adaptive seating and adaptive scissors and to modify every paper. Now, under 504, maybe, maybe not. But if we look at this kind of in the grand scheme of things, the school doesn't have to do it in these situations. And the parents know this, but they still want the school to do the right thing. And so they come to me and they say, it's just so frustrating. Why don't they do the right thing? And in a lot of cases, this is like, it totally makes sense because a lot of the parents will even go into like the school's handbook or the school's web page or um, even a lot of these are affiliated with churches and they'll go into like the teachings of the church and they'll say, oh, this is so frustrating. Our religion says and fill in this really beautiful, inclusive statement but they aren't letting my child attend the school and it is entirely frustrating and it doesn't make sense. It truly doesn't, and I completely empathize with the parent's situation. I completely agree. And I have been in a situation similar to this with my children's religious education, with their um, Sunday school of sorts. So the parents know these facts, but they want the school to do the right thing. But here's the right thing. This, the, here's, the, here's the thing about that, not the right thing. Here's the thing about that. The school won't do the right thing for no reason, right? They aren't going to do it unless the law requires them. Now, the parent's argument is, my child is the reason. My beautiful, beautiful child, my deserving child, my child that just wants to go to school with their siblings, with their neighbors, with their peers. Yeah, that's the right thing to do. But the school isn't going to do quote unquote the right thing if they aren't required to do so. And so the parents say to me, write a letter and say you're wrong and here's why and here's what you should have done. But the problem with that is, as I alluded to before, what does a letter from Ashley Barlow or a letter from the attorney that's local to you do? They're gonna get that letter. I always say, what are they gonna do? Say, well, this is some blonde lady that used to teach kindergarten German and got a JD. Why am I gonna listen to her? How is that gonna change the outcome here? What does Ashley Barlow writing me a letter have to do with your child's education? What does a letter from any advocate, from any attorney mean to the school? Absolutely nothing. A letter from an attorney or an advocate means nothing to them. They don't care what some attorney or some advocate says. Sure, they're wrong in principle, but they aren't wrong in 
the law, they don't have to provide whatever it is that you're asking for, eligibility, admission, that accommodation, etc. And there's kind of a third problem with this in this particular case, and that is they might be protecting some other interest. You know, it sounds like money, like we can't outfit an entire classroom, we can't keep up with the accommodations that your child needs, but it also might be that they aren't confident in their staff, or they aren't confident in their students, in their culture, in their environment, in their um, positive behavior interventions. They aren't confident that their environment can support your child. Well, how badly do you want to continue to fight for that kind of situation? How much energy do you want to put into advocating for that year after year? You know, you go from one kind of adaptive scissor to another kind of adaptive scissor to a third kind of adaptive scissor before you're using the scissors that the peers are using. And so how many times do you want to have the argument about the scissors, which only cost $4? You know, so they're probably protecting other interests that you might not even recognize. I want to give you another example after this quick message about my special education and advocacy lab. You don't have time to do anything. I completely understand. I don't either. I had to come to Key West to write the next course that I'm building because there are so many distractions in the life of a parent of a child with a disability. You might be driving to tutoring. You might be scheduling the doctor's appointments. You might be running from grocery store to grocery store to get the yogurt that your child has to have every morning. I completely understand I'm right there with you. That's why I've made my special education advocacy lab concise but thorough. If you buy the entry level just video portion of the lab, you get about six and a half hours of content. Now think about that. That's less than a work day. You could work out, watch the lab, have a really nice lunch, and do it all for the cost of one day's babysitter. You also could do it over the course of one week in the evenings or in the morning. Or you could take the time to watch one module per week, less than an hour a week for 10 weeks. The course comes in 10 modules, and each module is between 35 and 55 minutes easy to access, easy to download, easy to watch anywhere. I want you to join the Special Education Advocacy Lab and that's why I make it so easy for you to get the content. Okay, here is another example. Extended school year services. Parents oftentimes come to me and they say, they declined to offer my child extended school year services and therefore I want for you to send them a letter and tell them that they're wrong. And here's the deal. I mean, it's true. Schools oftentimes say, well, ESY, extended school year services, are only available to children that have shown regression over breaks. And then, like, oftentimes schools don't even have data to show you. They just say, well, he hasn't regressed over breaks. And you're like, well, what? <laughs> Hang on. Let me look at December and let me look at January and see this drop. I think that's regression. And school's like, eh, you know, that's not, that's not actually regression. 
Um, but there's other reasons why ESY can be warranted. ESY is actually very, very state specific. The, the, the qualifications to get ESY, the elements to getting ESY are very, very state specific. But in general, ESY is warranted when a child does make regression, when a child's progress does dip after breaks or after something that resembles a break. It also might um, be warranted if a child does not recoup skills very quickly. So after summertime, if it takes, you know, longer than a reasonable amount of time to recoup skills, to get back to baseline, then that's another reason. And there's other reasons that you can use predictive data. Like we think that it's going to take a while and so we need to close the gap. We can't have these long breaks from school. And so the, um, the United States Department of Ed has issued guidance saying schools can use any kind of predictive data to warrant ESY. And if you get ESY in your IEP, then what you get is you get some kind of instruction, specially designed instruction, the kind that you get in your IEP during breaks from school. So it might be long weekends, it might be summer, it might be over the um, holiday. That's what ESY is. So that's true. And schools oftentimes say, oh no, it's just for regression and your child hasn't regressed. And like I said, sometimes the child's actually regressed or sometimes we've got slow recruitment or we've got other data that says they probably aren't going to do so well. And the school says, no, you can't have ESY. Another thing with ESY is it should be individualized. And oftentimes schools want to do like a camp. So we put all of our children in grades K through four that have autism in this autism camp, or we put all of our children with this particular disability category in a, um, you know, an MMD camp, basically, a, a camp for children that have the same disability category. And ESY is not to be something like that. It's, it is supposed to provide that specially designed instruction that occurs in the children's IEP. So parents want for me to say, my kid should have gotten ESY. And before I tell you about this one, I want you to say, in lots of cases, that's true. The child should get ESY. But before I take the case, I wanna know very specific things because I've seen this pattern too many times with ESY. And so oftentimes they actually didn't actually want the ESY. So follow with me here. My first question when people come in and say, oh, I should have gotten ESY, I want you to send a letter and say that they were wrong is, if your child could have gone to ESY, would they have gone? Oh yeah, yes, Ashley, my child would have gone. So I'm like, okay, well, let's look at their IEP and let's look specifically at something that could have been reasonable. So we look at the IEP, we look at the goals that we should have been working on, we look at the minutes that the child normally gets towards that goal, we look at accommodations and modifications, we look at related services, and we come up and we say, okay, so let's say that it would have been reasonable in order to slow the regression, to speed up the recruitment, to continue on the right trajectory of progress, let's say the child should have gotten this many hours of ESY. And maybe we're looking at, you know, an hour or two per day all summer. Or maybe we're looking at um, several hours a day for 
three or four weeks in the summertime. Okay, so we're looking at some kind of little chunk of time in the summertime when we're getting this. And this is just hypothetical. This is what we're looking at. So that then begs the question, okay, well, how would you get there? How would you get to ESY? Lots of kids would ride the bus. Okay, cool. So they'd ride the bus. What do you do for summer childcare? Oh, well, my kid goes to a camp at the YMCA. So is the YMCA in your home school, school district, in your home school area? Like would the bus be able to drive your child to the YMCA? No. Okay, well, how could you get your child from your home to the YMCA for that day camp? Oh, I don't know. Well, that would be a logistic that we would have to figure out. Okay. And um, what about um, if your child wouldn't take the bus? Are you available during the day to bring your child back and forth to your 14-year-old babysitter who can't drive? No, <clears throat> but maybe my parents could. Okay, well, why don't you ask your parents if that could work? So also, what are they going to do in ESY? Okay, well, you know, I know the school's offering this. Okay, so the school's offering this and that didn't work out for your child. What does the YMCA day camp do with your child, right? Like, let's compare it to the summer that your child's getting without ESY. And very, very, very often times, children are in camps that provide something very similar to specially designed instruction. They might be in camps that are designed to help children with disabilities. They might be in camps that just similarly provide that kind of stuff. My kids have done all kinds of camps and programs that I think, gosh, I don't even know if they know this, but this is like an OT dream. This is wonderful. Look what they're getting. They're getting all this sensory work. They're getting all this grounding. They're getting all this mind-body stuff, you know? And so I oftentimes want to compare the programming that they would be getting instead of dragging them to school because lots of times, especially as they get older, the kids don't actually want to go to school. And of course, if they need to go to school, they go to school. I'm not against ESY. I love ESY, but I'm looking at the practicality of it, right? I'm looking at if we could have this happen, would we have this happen actually? Would we accept the offer? And what I'm getting at is a lot of times, like, I don't, I don't keep this statistic, but I would venture to say that nine times out of 10, once I get into this discussion with parents, they wouldn't take an offer of ESY, even if it was given to them. They would not say yes to ESY if the school said, this is what we can do for ESY. They, the parents would actually say, eh, that isn't for us. And so then it becomes a principle-based argument. Sure, they should have offered you ESY. Sure, he should have had five hours or 15 hours or 25 hours or the whole summer of ESY. But guess what? You wouldn't have said yes, even if the offer was given to you. Because what you're doing at the YMCA has other benefits. What you're doing with your babysitter has other benefits because your child so much doesn't want to go back to school that you would then have to, to counsel your child through that psychological piece of this. And so what happens is they wouldn't have said yes anyway, but they still want for me to go in and tell them, oh, you were wrong. And so what are the outcomes of me making these 
letters of me writing the letters and saying, oh school, you were wrong. What would happen if I did that? Well, first of all, the parents would get nothing because there's nothing to make them happy. And by the way, my number one advocacy tip is know what you want. Seems so simple. Know what you want. But I've done this long enough to know that some parents just want to come to me to complain and they don't actually want anything. And you can't advocate unless you know a solution. You can't advocate unless something can happen. And sometimes you don't know the solution, but you need to go to school and say something needs to be fixed. How can we fix this? And you have to actually want a solution. And so a problem to these principle-based arguments is parents don't know what they want or they want something that's unattainable and therefore they get nothing. Another outcome is these parents are viewed as highly, highly emotional because they spend their time and if they hire an attorney or advocate, their money on emotions and not on concepts, not on those hard and fast concepts that are founded in law or centered on the child and the child's experiences. So the parents are viewed as emotional and then in future advocacy efforts, they might not get as far because they're just viewed as emotional people that come with arguments with no solutions. That can affect your bargaining power later. They think you kind of blow smoke, so to speak, which can be very, very detrimental. And don't forget, you're exhausted because you've spent all of this negative energy and time and money and you've gotten everything organized for something that really doesn't have a solution. You've spent all this energy telling somebody that they're wrong when them, even if they were to acknowledge that they were wrong, doesn't do anything for the child. Chris Voss is the author of Never Split the Difference, a book on negotiation that I read and read and read. I love that book. I just talked in a prior podcast, I talked to Ray Nelson and I hadn't read Splitting the Difference in a few years. And so I picked it back up. I've read it twice since I talked to Ray here on the podcast. What Chris Voss says in that book is, being right isn't the key to a successful negotiation. Having the right mindset is. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. So I told you I would give you some solutions and I definitely want to give you a few solutions. One is express your discontentedness in the meeting and also maybe later in a writing, in, a, in a, some, something that's written, like an email or a letter, something that goes into your child's record. It's okay to say, I'm really disappointed that you won't admit my child that has CP into this program. I really think it's wrong for these reasons. And I read the handbook and the handbook says this, that helps. And if you do that, you're viewed as somebody that can be objective. You're viewed as somebody that follows up on your arguments, but also that you acknowledge that maybe there's a better solution and that continuing down this path with no solutions is not the right outcome for your family. It also can obviously set the precedent for more discussion later. You know, I'm not gonna let you push, you push me around all the time. And I am going to catch things more quickly so that we can catch them when there is a solution. If you have to walk away, walk away. 
If you have to leave a discussion because you feel it going down this principle-based just because it's wrong argument, walk away. There is so much power in just saying, fine, see you later. There is so much power in just being strong enough to say, okay, I'm out. And then when you do that, you go be the best you that you can be. So, so many times parents come to me and they say, I want you to write this letter to say that they're wrong. And I say, well, nothing's going to happen. And then they say, well, what are they going to think about me? I just made this big stink. I cried in front of the superintendent and blah, blah, blah. And so I got to do something. I got to stay in front of them because I'm like up here, I'm, I'm really um, emotional about this right now. And so if I walk away, they're going to think I'm some kind of fool. But if walking away is the right answer because there's nothing else that can happen, then sometimes all you can do is go be the best you that you can be. And you know schools are communities. You know that you live in a small community. And so you know they're going to see you being the best you that is there. So if your private school doesn't accept your child, you go to the public school or you find another private school and you take that child there and you knock that child out of the ballpark in this new environment and you show that school just by living your life and just by doing the right thing and by really pouring yourself into this new solution how amazing you and your family can be and if they really care enough maybe they'll learn a lesson and your leadership by example, as opposed to you trying to cram some kind of theory down their throats in a negotiation. So you go and you do what you have to do and you do it as best as you can do it. And if they take notice, they will benefit. If they choose not to take notice, you're back to no harm, no foul. So oftentimes when I'm faced with these situations, which I am in special education and in thousands of other aspects of life, I say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take this little boy, I'm gonna knock him out of the ballpark. And that's what I want for you to do too. I want for you to know that you are taking your child and you are gonna help them to knock it out of the ballpark because you're doing the right thing. And you can't make everybody do the right thing, but by darned, you're gonna do the right thing and that's right for your child. I'll see you next time, same time, same place. Thanks for joining me. I cannot wait to tell you about our affiliate program. The Special Education and Advocacy Lab opens for enrollment on July 15th, 2021. And not only have I slashed prices to make my online, on-demand, nuts and bolts training more accessible to parents, but I also am rolling out this affiliate program. If you have friends that are parents of children on IEPs, and if you want to learn more about special education advocacy yourself so that you're a more effective parent at your child's IEP team, I encourage you to check out the affiliate program. You can save money on your own registration or on any other product in my library by joining the affiliate program. Check out the link on my website for more information.